0: She was lying there on the bed and I said, you know, there, there lies the person that I love and she is still in there. She's in the grips of this horrible disease, but she's still there and I still love her and I still want to stay with her. And that was the moment at which I knew what my decision was.
1: I would say, listen to your heart, don't be afraid, and don't give up. It doesn't matter which program you qualify for or if you qualify for both. Listen to your heart, don't be afraid, and don't give up.
0: Welcome to episode 294 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Diana, Karen, Rebecca, Molly, and Linda. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Diana, Karen, Rebecca, Molly, and Linda, for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes, and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to you. My name is Spencer, and I am your host today. The voices you heard were me and my wife Amy from a conversation we had with John M. of the Sober Speak podcast. We spoke of what it was like, what happened, and what it's like now for each of us individually and as a couple. This conversation was also published as episode 82 of Sober Speak. And here it is in The Recovery Show.
2: Okay, everybody. So today, this very day right here, we are sitting with Amy and Spencer. So there's two things that are a little bit unusual for me in this one. Number one, I've never had two people on the podcast at the same time. And the other part to this is, well, first of all, Amy, why don't you go ahead and just say hello to the Sober Speak audience? Hello. And will you give your sobriety date if you would, please? September 3rd, 2005. Thank you. And Mr. Spencer, will you go ahead and say hello to the Sober Speak audience yourself?
0: Hello, Sober Speak audience.
2: (laughs) Thank you. And you don't have a sobriety
0: date. And the reason you don't have a sobriety date is why? I'm a member of the Al-Anon Fellowship, and I have what I call a surrender date. Ah, and so what is your surrender date? My surrender date is April 10th, 2002. Okay, so that's April 10th,
2: 2002. And and Amy, will you once again, I, I'm sorry, I'm usually good at writing this down. Your sobriety date is what? Um, September 3rd, 2005. Okay. And the reason I wanted to make sure I had both of those on the front end is because this kind of becomes significant as we uh, go through this uh, particular episode. So Those of you who are listening to this that are in Al-Anon may very well recognize Spencer's voice uh, because he has his own podcast. And the name
0: of that podcast is... The Recovery Show. Isn't that a little bit... um... How do I how do I justify calling it the recovery oh, show, right? Like a little omnipotent like uh something like that. Right, uh, right, right. right. But that's what we called it. We were looking we were looking for a name when the three of us started this show at, at the help of with the help of a friend of mine who has a also a recovery podcast. Um when we were starting the show, we were looking for names that said recovery somehow, and that we could get a dot com for. And my friend Mark said, how about therecoveryshow.com? It's not taken. And we're like, okay. There you go. <laughs>
2: so and you thus, go. and thus we have a start. And so the recovery show, for those of you who have not listened to it before, is an Al Anon based web uh, based uh, show, Podcast, right? Yeah. Podcast. Okay. And the the really interesting part to me in, in doing this episode is that we have his wife with him, Miss Amy, and uh, she has never actually been recorded on Spencer's show before. Uh, I guess mainly because he has uh, Alan on people or just hasn't had an interest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So let me ask you a question, Miss Amy. Have you, do you listen to Spencer's uh, show very much? Okay. I only recently, fairly recently,
1: um listen to the pilot episode, the first sh- show. I I for a long time was afraid of what I would hear about myself. <laughs> um and uh listening to that went well. Um there was stuff there about me, but it was okay, you know. I I uh, feel like I am coming to terms with my past pretty well.
2: So you got us over in 2005. And when did you start
0: the podcast, Spencer? Um, let me think. December 2012 Okay, so when you, we started.
2: So you know he's in there in December of 2012 up until now, going into the attic or wherever he goes, or to the basement or to another room. You know he's in there recording Al-Anon-type uh, uh episodes, but you didn't start listening to it until just recently.
1: Yes. I have a lot of catching up to
2: do. <laughs> <laughs> because he has how many episodes do you have, Spencer? I think currently it's 288. Wow. Yeah, you <laughs> Yeah, you have some catching up to do. So were you just not uh interested in it? Or was it mainly like because you said that you were concerned that you were going to hear things about yourself?
1: Uh, Definitely, I'm interested. I'm very proud of Spencer's recovery in his own right. He's got an awesome story. uh, And it's been huge for me and our kids. I'm very happy he's so active in Al-Anon. I totally approve of his podcast. I
2: was just afraid of what I would hear. (laughs) Did you hear other people that... New Spencer and knew you and would you would go to a particular events say, Hey, he was talking about you the other day on a podcast.
1: No, um, I was aware that my sister in law listens to it. I think I had gathered that she. Had heard some things where he was talking about himself about something I didn't think I knew about. <laughs> so it was probably going to behoove me to listen.
2: <laughs> oh, that's great. All right. So, well, so we're here today. And so we're going to record an episode. So, uh, you know, Spencer has close to 300 episodes of recorded history. You can go back. You can find out a lot about Mr. Spencer. <laughs> we have zero recorded episodes of miss amy so i want to find out a little bit about miss amy in your story and then we'll kind of go back and forth between you and spencer so amy why don't you tell me a little bit about how you what how did we get here right how how did you get to this point in your life, how did you make your way into Alcoholics Anonymous? I know that there are always uh, quite a few details that go behind that, but kind of give me a thumbnail sketch if you can. Sure, I always felt different,
1: and I and not in a good way. I and I've heard other recovering people tell me the same thing. We just felt like we didn't fit in, and I discovered alcohol in my mid-teens, and it was love at first sight, I guess. It made me feel
2: like I fit in better. And where did you grow up again? Fort Worth. Fort Worth. So you grew up in Texas. Yes. This is the deep in the heart of Texas. That is fantastic. (laughs) By the way, I guess we should say that we're all here in Texas right now. and And I'm so glad that you all were able to come over tonight. And the reason, I guess, is that you have family here, correct, Amy? Yes. Great. All right. So you grew up in Fort Worth, Texas. You fell in love with alcohol in your mid teens. And then, but you were out there for quite some time. It sounds like, correct? Yes. A long time. I,
1: I believe my high school friends, I'm very close to them still would tell you, I would have told you at the time that I was an alcoholic. Um, they did not tell me. And I didn't understand that for decades. I drank too much when I could as a teenager. And then in college, I feel like at the time anyway, pretty much everybody drank alcoholically. (laughs) But uh, most people got over it (laughs) when they got out of college. My drinking was not always out of bounds consistently. I knew in grad school, even though I was having one glass of wine per day, the fact that it had to be every day, I knew that was a problem. Then, uh, when our children, we have twins, were
2: about three. Okay, so let me slow you down there uh-huh. just a little bit, okay? First of all, did you all meet in when you were in school in college? Is that right? Uh, no, in grad school. Okay, so beginning you in grad school with the beginning of my grad school. Yes. Okay. And Spencer, did you want to say something?
0: I just want to say I was clueless. I didn't see anything unusual about her drinking. I can look back now and I can say, wow, she was having just barely enough money to buy groceries, but she always had wine on the counter. She had a wine rack. But that's hindsight. That is totally hindsight. At the time, I didn't think anything was unusual at all.
2: Okay. So you you are seeing your drinking and you know, Miss Amy, that you were drinking. uh, There's something not quite right about it. Y'all are meeting in grad school. He is observing your drinking and thinking, "Hey, you know, there's nothing wrong with this, right? Do I have that correct?
0: I grew up in a, I grew up in a family that I would say drank normally, the possible exception of some relatives, but my nuclear family, as far as I can tell, you know, they would have a glass of wine with dinner or a cup of sherry before dinner or something like that, and that was it. Her having a glass of wine with dinner seemed normal, right right. Okay. So your drinking
2: then, did it start to progress after grad school? And when you had your children, you said you had your twins. And let me just m- make sure I have the timeline right here. So at some point in there, you all got married. Am I correct? Okay. Yeah. Well, I, you know, yes, it's nowadays, true. You, it's kn-
0: true. <laughs> you never know. It'll be 35 years in July.
2: 35 years. Fantastic. Okay. So you're, so you're getting out of school. Uh, and how long after you got married, did you have your twins?
0: Married in eighty four. They were born in nineteen ninety. It took a little while. We
2: all right. So you so you had your children in nineteen ninety. So so you were talking about the time period where you had your twins. So that must have meant something significant to your drinking story. Am I right, Amy?
1: Yes. Um. I think I am. Okay. I love my children fiercely. I adore my children. Um. And we spent a long time trying to have children. I was kind of undone by the
2: experience. And when you say undone, are you talking about it stressful?
1: Yes. This is an aspect of my personality that was not necessary. I was working full-time in a business school at night and had infant twins. I think it was a mistake. And I think at the point that my kids were three and... I still wasn't able to sleep at night yet, and it was too much, and I think uh, my drinking took off. I did not get sober. I believe I started toying with sobriety and wanting to drink less probably
2: around then, and it took me 10 years. So you mean 10 years from that point of when your kids were three, and when you started using it to kind of sedate yourself to go to sleep, it progressed, but you struggled with it off and on for 10 years from that point.
1: Yes. So I spent a long time trying to figure out how to drink like a normal person. And I am not a normal person. I am powerless over alcohol. And at the That did not work.
2: (laughs) Did you have any sort of um, a background, a a family background in terms of alcoholism?
1: I think, okay, I do not diagnose my parents, but there are times in their lives, I think, they were drinking alcoholically. So I, I couldn't tell you if I really have that genetically. I suspect
2: so. Okay, so that 10 years you were drinking, uh, d- does that lead us up to that 2005 date? No. I Spencer
1: probably is better on the dates than I am. I believe I, well, he learned about Al-Anon when I was in treatment the first time.
0: Is that right? That was your first inpatient treatment. There were some outpatients before that. So yeah, a little bit of my... My picture of those years, at some point, Amy said, I drink too much. I want to try to moderate my drinking and um, started attending uh, a moderation program. And there were a couple of those. There was one sponsored by the university and I was completely on board with that, I got to say. I just wanted her to be able to drink normally, right? You know, like I didn't want to go to a party and have – I mean, I remember coming out of a party one night. You may or may not remember this, but – and it was icy. And I said, let's walk down through the snow because it won't be slippery. And she was like, nope, I'm going on the side, on the driveway and slipped and went flat on her back. And I don't know if you remember that or not, but that, that kind of thing really scared me.
2: She's shaking her head, no, I don't remember yeah. that.
0: Um, you know, so – I thought if we can just get back to normal, we'll be good. And it wasn't until many years later that somebody read to me that that section of the big book about the persistent illusion. And I was like,
2: oh, yeah, I had that too. The persistence <laughs> of this illusion is astonishing. Many yeah. pursued it into
0: the gates of insanity or yeah. death. And so then there were, once the moderation things weren't working, I guess, you decided to go into an outpatient and there were at least two of those I don't remember cuz I remember going to the friends and family days that's how I kind of like oh I was in this room and then I was in that room um and then um you went to an inpatient and that's that's when I finally heard the message about Al-Anon like I remember one of the one of the outpatient programs they were like you know all your friends and family like you would probably benefit by going to Al-Anon and I'm like heck no I am not the person with the problem here <laughs> right Okay, Um, But so when we were in that inpatient, I was there for they had a whole day. Wednesday, it was a Wednesday, you know, get there at like eight in the morning till four in the afternoon. Lots of presentations and some there was this really weird role playing thing about I statements with with fellow other family members of, you know, um, there was a meeting with the therapist and somehow in there I heard that I didn't cause it that I couldn't cure it and that I couldn't control it. And I might have heard those words. Somebody might have said those words to me before, but that was the first time I heard them. I heard them in my heart and I and looking back, that was the moment that I really took that first step in admitting my powerlessness in my heart. I didn't take it in my head, right? Cuz, you know, that would be like, no, I'm I'm like an American male, I'm supposed to be able to fix anything, right? But I took it in my heart. And that night I went to my first Al-Anon meeting because, like, if I can't fix her, I need to do something for myself. And maybe, just maybe, this Al-Anon thing would help. What do I have to lose? You know, an hour of my evening.
2: So, Amy, did you know he was going to Al-Anon?
1: I don't. I, I think if I was an inpatient,
2: I wouldn't have known. So when did you catch wind that he was going to Al-Anon? How did you feel about it at the time? I
1: think I probably knew and didn't know anything about Al-Anon, but why not? You know, I mean, everybody can use help. (laughs) Right. So
2: you didn't have any ill feelings toward... Not at all. I mean, a lot of people, will they go, what are they doing? Are they
0: over there talking about me or something (laughs) like that? So they they don't want folks to go into Al-Anon. I I do remember her at one point asking me, are those Al-Anon people telling you to leave me?
1: I I was very worried about that. All that right. he was. That was a huge fear for me. That uh, he would divorce me, and uh, I didn't know what kind of advice he was getting. So I did worry about that.
2: Okay, so let's cover that real quick, Spencer, since you brought it up. When people are attending uh, Al-Anon, what's the perspective there? Do you? Do you hear people in the room saying, "Okay, it's time for you to to check out and to leave that person"? Or, I mean, how does that usually work?
0: What I will say is, if it's a healthy meeting, you don't hear that. If the if with with healthy people in Al Anon recovery, you don't hear that. Uh, we share do? our own experience, our own strength. We say, "This is what worked for me. This is what didn't work for me. This is my experience." Uh, and I know a lot of people who you know left their loved one and i know a smaller number of people who didn't uh, and that seems to be just the the experience but my experience is my experience and i i know that there are some members of the program who've told me i'm really glad that you told your story that you that you talked about staying in your in your marriage while your wife was still drinking because that helped me a lot.
2: Okay, so let's go back to that then. So how long were you in the program while Amy was still drinking?
0: Well, if you take those two dates at the beginning, it's yes. about three and a half years.
2: And what were those three and a half years like for you? And I'm going to come back to you in just a second, Amy. I want to know what got you finally in there for at least one day at a time for quite some time now.
0: At the beginning, the beginning was very confusing. You know, I came into the program with a lot of anger, a lot of fear, a lot of confusion, a lot of despair. Um, and a big question. What do I do? Because at that time I could not visualize staying married to somebody who was drinking the way she was drinking. And, and, but I also could not visualize not staying married. Okay. What do I do? And, and what I thought at that time was there's only these two choices. And what I, okay. So there's one piece of advice, advice that we do give in the program or, you know, which is, well, number one, make your own decision. But number two, if you don't know the answer to a question you're facing and you're not in personal danger, you can wait until you do know what the right answer is for you. And I heard that, you know, sometimes it's said, don't make any big decisions in the first year. Um, sometimes it's a little more subtle than that, but, What I heard was you can wait. You don't have to make a decision right now because I sure didn't know what decision I wanted. And what I found was a different path. I found a path through the 12 steps of the program that brought me to a place where I could say, yes, I can stay and I want to.
2: We'll be continuing our conversation with Spencer from The Recovery Show and Amy in just a moment. Just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at SoberSpeak.com. Uh, you can also find a donate button on our website, which you can use if and only if the Spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind, this is a podcast funded by you the listener. Sober speak, is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Spencer and Amy. So Amy, that 2005 date that you have, Obviously, you went through a lot to get there. We all do. Nobody comes in just saying, hey, you know what a glorious day this is. Just want to check out an AA meeting. Are you able to put your finger on an event or a time and place, or a particular thought, some sort of turning point, if you will, that brought you into the rooms for Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, I don't want to say for good, we're all just one day at a time, uh, but this last time. Okay, um, there's a few
1: factors. I was in inpatient treatment seven times, once for four months, once for 10 weeks, once for a month. Uh, Some of these were kind of long periods. Um, And I would, it's easy to stay sober in treatment. I would go home and either immediately or before
2: too long, relapse. Now, do you remember the thought process that would go through your head preceding that relapse?
1: Just not feeling like I had a choice. So a huge factor, I had a, uh, a professional career, and they say the thing that you put in front of your recovery is the first thing you'll lose, and that happened, and I got fired. And I believe getting fired saved my life.
2: Hold on. Let's sit there a little bit. That kind of uh, got you a little bit emotional what do you Can you dive into that a little bit further? What do you mean getting fired saved your life?
1: because that's what got me sober I had to ultimately I decided i had to to get sober at home in order to stay sober at home and um so I detoxed on my own, which is not a good idea, but it was the right time and place, and uh it's been amazing. I am happier today than I've ever been in my life. I'm much happier than that young person who had never had a drink ever could have been. I'm just very fortunate. Let's have Spencer talk for a little bit. You got it.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll flip over to Spencer here. So, so so I want to switch then a little bit to you all's life before and after the program. So Spencer, we've talked about those three and a half years or so where, where you found Alan on and Amy was still out there drinking, but I kind of want to do a couple's version of, you know, it's usually what, what I was like, what happened and what I'm like now. Yeah. Well, I'd like to hear from your perspective and we'll also get Amy to chime in here. You know, what we were like, what happened and what we are like now.
0: So I will say that there was a very gradual process of sort of pulling apart as I guess her drinking progressed and my failure to fix it got more and more harder for me, right? Like I was doing everything I knew how to do and none of it was working. No matter how hard I slammed those wine bottles into the recycling bin, she didn't drink less, you know? I was a very angry person inside because I was stuffing everything down.
2: Did that anger come out in inappropriate ways?
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It came out, a lot of it came out on my children. They would do something really minor, and I would scream and pound the table. And, you know, I just, I look back at that and say, how was I that person? Do they remember any of that? Yeah, the one I think that captures it for me is something my daughter said to me just a few years ago. Um, She said, when you would yell at us, I would go in the other room and hide, at least mentally hide and emotionally hide. And I knew that you would calm down and I would have my daddy back. Okay, now I'm getting emotional, you know, because... That was, that was the effect that my untreated Al if you want to use that word, was having on the people around me. It was coming out on my coworkers. I remember one of my bosses was like, you absolutely have to take some anger management because this is getting out of hand. Um, I think Al Anon saved not only our marriage, my sanity and also my job because I was just, I didn't know what to do and I couldn't talk to anybody about it and it was all inside. And so it just came out sideways all over the place. And then I talked about my, my moment of clarity, right? My moment of surrender, where I was like, I can't do this. I actually, like, I felt lighter when I heard those words and took them into me. I felt physically lighter. So yeah, so I went to Al-Anon. I started to listen. I started to hear people say, go to meetings." read the literature, get a sponsor, work the steps. I'm like, well, I don't know how that's going to help me, but okay. Because I didn't have an alternative and I was already starting to feel better, right? So I was like, well, I want more of that. So al brought me to a place, so you know, I can tell a much longer version of this story, but Alan brought me to a place where I could live in the chaos of active drinking and have serenity. Did you ever think about leaving? Well, I, you know, the first two years, I was like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I can't do this. I can't leave. That was that was where I was. I can't do this, and I can't leave. What the hell? A,
2: that's with an alcoholic. The alcoholic says, "I can't live with alcohol, and yeah. I can't live without it. Yeah.
0: I'm stuck." Yeah, I was powerless, and I didn't know what to do. And then, as I, I think I've said this, I know I've said this in in talks and on the podcast. One night, I looked at her. As she was lying there on the bed and I said, you know, there there lies the person that I love and she is still in there. She's in the grips of this horrible disease, but she's still there and I still love her and I still want to stay with her. And that was the moment at which I knew what my decision was, what the answer to that question that had been bugging me for a couple of years was. And it wasn't easy for the next approximately year and a half, um, especially the last bit when You know, she was home and that led her to her, you know, her moment of clarity. I just remember you waking up one morning and saying, I don't want to drink today. And I don't want to drink tomorrow. Will you help me clear the alcohol out of the house? I am so grateful that Amy was able to find sobriety for herself. Not for me, not for the kids, but for herself. Because I believe that's what's enabled her to stay Sober, but that's my belief. I don't know what she would say.
2: What do you think about Amy when you hear him talking about those last days? I just have a lot of
1: gratitude. I am very fortunate in my family. I'm fortunate in my friends and in uh, my community. I think it's kind of a miracle that I'm alive, and I'm very happy to be married to Spencer. He may have to talk. A lot of the rest of the that's time. Right, that's okay.
2: <laughs> Amy's getting a little bit of emotional here, and I. But I, but I love it, and that's why, you know, I always say a prayer at the beginning of these things. And you know this, Spencer. You sit down with somebody, and you never know exactly what's going to come out. You never know which direction this is going to be taken. And I can tell you, there are times where. Well, first of all, I enjoy all the guests, right? I enjoy them tremendously and I appreciate all their time that come in here. But there are times where I'm sitting there in the room right where we are right now, um, in the studio, as I call it, which is a guest bedroom in my home. And I can tell that God is right there in the middle of this, in this room with us. So Amy, I know, and we will go back to Spencer if we need to, but I, like I said, I told you before I came over here, I, I know about Spencer from this show. I, I get to, I listen to his podcast all the time. By the way, I just, I do want to say, and I'll probably put this on the beginning of this show as an intro. If you're an Al-Anon, especially, even if you're an AA, right? I'm an AA. I listen to Spencer's podcast and it is the best Recovery podcast out there. And I've, I've heard all of them. Okay, and just kind of doing research. And I told my wife this before you all got here tonight, you know, and I'm not just saying this because you're sitting in front of me. It's the one that keeps my interest. So if you haven't gone over there and listened to The Recovery Show, and I finally got what you were saying earlier. You're saying like, we are the answer. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah. We're
0: the only one out there. A little there. <laughs> bit bombastic, a little bit ambitious, <laughs> a little bit, yeah.
2: Uh-huh. It's like a Jerry Seinfeld does this whole thing where he talks about how... When people were sitting down, coming up with the uh, name of life cereal, they were like, Hmm, should we call it life? They started out by saying, Let's call it God Almighty cereal. And they said, No, 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 we need to tone that down a little bit. We'll call it life, you know? So, with you and the recovery show, I get it. All right. So, anyway, Amy, I want to go back to you a little bit. When you think of your version, really, of What we were like, what happened, and what we are like now, what comes to mind for you? Can you give us some kind of turning points from your perspective uh, within your marriage? When I was drinking
1: way too much, way, way too much, Spencer had to run the show. Uh, And I've heard this story from other people. Then when I got sober,
2: yes, there
0: was an adjustment. <laughs> yes, there was. <laughs> um, she wants to have a say? What are you talking about?
1: He was a wonderful co-parent, but I'm just so happy that we can be partners again these last 13 plus, 13 years plus, and instead of one competent person <laughs> and one very sick person. I'm just so happy that he has his own recovery and we've both grown up in recovery. I was a 47-year-old, uh, well, I was a 17-year-old in a 47-year-old body. And so I have been privileged to grow up a lot since then. And uh, I think Spencer in his Self reflection and working the steps and being sponsored and sponsoring that process. We've both grown tremendously.
2: So, Spencer, what's your version? So, so n- not a version, but your yes. perception, yep. I should say. And, and let me preface it by, I'm really interested in that period to where. Like she said, you had a lot of responsibility, I'm sure, right? You were taking over a lot of the, whatever uh, household items needed to be done. Then all of a sudden she's getting sober. She's starting to change. And you see this happen with people all the time. What were the differences that you noticed?
0: I'm trying to look back, you know, 13 years here, um, 14 years almost. uh, And, and say what, because I know what I said to people at the time I said, she wants to have a say in the way the house runs. I can't just run it myself anymore. This is hard. You know, we're, we're fighting about real stuff again, sort of. But what I want to say to maybe the Al Anon out there or somebody who is living with a newly sober person and you have been living with the alcoholism for some years. Um, I mean, if, if I take Amy's word that she drank alcoholically since before we met, then when she got sober, I had been living with alcoholism for 25 years. That has an effect, a cumulative effect on how much I trust her. And when all of a sudden she's sober and maybe, and I'm I'm exaggerating a little bit here, I'm simplifying a lot she wants things to go back to how they were how they worked air quotes here i'm not ready for that i am not emotionally ready for that at the beginning of her sobriety especially when we had i think a period of 8 months a few years earlier i'm i'm not going to buy in yet i cannot give myself over emotionally i cannot give trust of my emotions to her at that point, right? And for me, that's been a process and it's been, a, it's it's taken longer than I wish it did. It is what it is, as we say, but uh, it's been a long time and what I say and meaning sometimes is, you know, it took me 25 years to get here. It's, it's taking me less than 25 years to get out, but I can't expect it to happen overnight. And so, I get, sometimes I get emails from people who are, you know, their partner is new in sobriety and they're different. And I'm like, yeah, they are. And they will be and you will be. Um, and this is normal. Um, and don't feel like you have to change instantly because you can't. And here's my experience. So that's just what I want to say about that. And, So she talked about not wanting to listen to my podcast because what she might hear about herself. And and I'm like, what did I say? Oh, my God. Over the last five, almost, what, six years? Since 2012? Six and a half years? (laughs) What did I say on all those 288 episodes? (laughs) I'm trying to, you know, and I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. Whatever I said, I said it. I meant it at the time. And it is six and a half years. And that, I have changed. We're in a lot. I think we're closer more realistically, more more honestly closer than we ever were. There's that, that first period when you meet somebody and you're just getting together and everything is like sunshine and puppy dogs and unicorns and rainbows. Okay, that's an illusion. And what we got now is not necessarily sunshine and puppy dogs and unicorns and rainbows, but it's a lot more real. What would either of you
2: say is the best tool that you have acquired during either your sobriety or either your time in Al-Anon to help you be a couple. I mean, like, so, like I guess I'm thinking about a a real tool that you can use on a day to day basis to help uh, couples in general be the kind of couples that they want to be
0: moving forward.
2: Spencer, you want to take that one first?
0: I don't have a simple answer for that. Um, First, when you started talking, I'm like, well, the biggest tool for me was letting go and understanding what to let go of. And so that's the serenity prayer, right? God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, so let go of the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, so keep that, which is basically me. And the wisdom to know the difference and and knowing what to let go of and what to hang on to. Uh, I think that's core to my recovery. But you asked about couples. And I think the biggest tool for me is the thing that was the scariest tool for me when I came in, which was that inventory step of getting to know myself. Because until I know myself, and that's a journey that I'm still on, how can I ever honestly connect with another person when I don't even know who I am, right? I don't think somebody who's just coming into the program wants to hear that, but that it, thats that's what it is. Now, I think I would say the how of the program being in the other order, willing, open, and honest, right? Honest, open, and willing. I think that's the key, to be honest with myself, to be honest with Amy, to be open as well as I can, to be willing to do those things. Amy, I
2: know that you're involved in service work in Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell me a little bit about that. What do you do within AA in order not to be just a uh, looker honor, so to speak, and somebody who's involved in the program?
1: In AA, I just simply sponsor women. That, to me, is... A really important part of my life. I love having a sponsor who knows all my secrets, and I enjoy taking other women through the steps. I have been very fortunate in my sponsees. I have one sponsee right now who has 31 years sober. How do you sponsor someone with 31 (laughs) years? But uh, she chose me, and we've been through the steps with her working them. Now we're going through the steps together, working them with each other. So this is my AA story. I also volunteer with a, a nonprofit that is not AA, but it is a uh, women's recovery organization. I love that work. So what does the nonprofit do? Okay, uh, we provide activities, workshops, and retreats for recovering women. So one of the big things the big motives is that someone new in recovery will be able to make a create a network of recovering women friends. And I just wish I had had that. Um, I just remember how vulnerable and alone I felt. I have often said early recovery for me was five years at least. It took me a long time to open up enough to really develop big, powerful fellowship around me. My first sponsor talked about an African herd of antelope, and this, the ones in the middle are safe. The ones on the edges, the stragglers, those are the ones picked off by the lions. And uh, it took me a long time to get to the middle of the herd, but uh, it is the biggest protection I have. I can't be a good wife or mother or happy person without being sober. And that is a daily reprieve. Working with women, getting and staying
2: sober keeps me in the middle of that. Yeah, we always uh, say in our group, uh, it's started here lately, it's kind of a new thing, at least for me. And that is, you hear a lot of people say, uh, come all the way in, and sit all the way down. Hmm. Uh, I like that. Yeah. You want to be in the middle of the pack. Mm-hmm. I love it. What about you, Spencer?
0: What, in terms of service? Yes. Well, I, Oh,
2: and one thing before yeah. we go on from that, I did want to ask you, would you like to mention the name of the organization that you belong to, just in case somebody were interested in contacting it? Sure. It's the Ann Arbor Women's Group we're a 501c3
1: nonprofit organization.
2: Our uh, website is a2womensgroup.org. And for those who may not know this, uh, Ann Arbor is
0: in Michigan. Yes.
2: Gotcha. <laughs> There's a lot of people listening in different corners of the world.
0: Yeah, But, you know, I bet somebody just is like, oh, that is such an awesome idea, and maybe I could get some pointers on how to start one of on my own, right? That's it, exactly. Yeah. Uh, service, I sponsor men. Um, I sponsor members of Al-Anon. There are very few men in Al-Anon, and occasionally a woman asks me to sponsor her. And then I have to decide whether that is a fit for me.
2: So let me cover that real quick. And that is, you are a man in Al-Anon. Yes. And as you know, Al-Anon is made up of primarily women. By the way, Amy, I'm just curious from your end, does that ever... Bother you, if you will, that you know that he's going to an organization that is primarily made up of women.
1: No, <laughs> just because I know Spencer and I have no doubts about Spencer. That's
2: great. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Okay, good to hear. So, but you, Spencer, when you got into Al-Anon, and you see that it is primarily women, there's not many men around, did it? Did it? Uh, uh
0: what sort of thoughts did you have about that? I don't think I really did. I really, I mean, there, the. the uh, in the Ann Arbor, Al-Anon community, there, there's a reasonable number of men. And sometimes I'm sitting at a, at a table. We have table meetings in Michigan and we split up into multiple tables instead of one big group. Sometimes I'm sitting at a table where it's more men than women. Sometimes I'm the only man at the table. It just varies a lot. And uh, I don't think I really thought about it. Um, so yeah, so in terms of service, I sponsor people. I have currently, I would say three people who, Are actively seeking sponsorship. Um, other people who might call me occasionally, you know, that I'm sure that works that way for you too, right? Uh, some people I meet with regularly, some people I meet with when something comes up for them because we've already been through the steps. I, I do see myself as a step based sponsor. The first thing that I do when I sit down with somebody is we start with step one. Um, and we go as far as, as far as they go. Uh, we, we're not as quite as, Forceful about it, maybe in Al Anon as as an AA, um, the stakes don't feel as high. Um, I bet some Al Anon members
2: would argue with that, though. I,
0: I just said feel as high. I understand. Um, I believe they they are um, for for some people. It is a matter of life and death. It's just not as obvious. I think that's what it is. It's not as obvious, right, for most of us. My big one of my big service commitments to Al Anon is doing the podcast. I've been asked I actually I'm alternate group rep for one of my meetings also which is I have I've have two meetings I consider home group uh, that I go to regularly that I participate in group conscience and so on I'm an alternate group rep for one of those and I'm pretty sure at some point I'm going to be group rep because that's the way that happens right mm-hmm. uh, and then all of a sudden a whole new vista of of service opportunities open up right so uh, we'll see where that goes uh, but I I like I feel like doing a podcast is sort of a one-on-one. I like to sitting at the microphone, I'm sitting at the microphone looking across the table at you and I'm talking to you. Okay? And you are now a representative of everybody else who's listening. But I I I really feel like I'm talking to one person at a time.
2: I hear you um you know and this is more podcast talk now but I I never a- anticipated that this would become what it has become. And I never anticipated that I would grow as close to the community um, as I have and think about them as much as I have and pray about them as much as I have. It just really kind of blows my mind when I think about it. All right, so before we kind of, I guess, uh, wrap things up here, w- is there anything... That you guys want to add and think about it this way. There are people out there who are listening to maybe a podcast or an episode like this for the first time in their lives. There are people that I call who are sober curious or Alanon curious and they haven't quite made that leap yet. Uh, share from your experience if you can, um, and talk to that particular individual.
0: As I said, I really didn't think I needed anything like Al-Anon. But my life was miserable. It doesn't cost very much to give it a try. I came to my first meeting of Al-Anon April 10th, 2002, after driving back home from that friends and family day at the treatment center. I went to my first meeting I sat by the door so I could escape if I needed to. And at the end of that meeting, the most important thing that I knew, I don't I don't remember what anybody said in the meeting, but I knew that I was no longer alone. So if you feel alone in your struggle as I did, give it a try because there are a whole bunch of us who have been where you've been and welcome you. Do
2: you want to add anything, Amy?
0: Yes.
1: I would say, listen to your heart, don't be afraid, and don't give up. It doesn't matter which program you qualify for or if you qualify for both. Listen to your heart, don't be afraid, and don't give up.
2: Very nice. Okay, so... I made a commitment this year really to myself and I had talked about it on the podcast at the beginning of the year and that is I wanted to get more people from Al-Anon on the podcast this year and the main reason was is because I noticed from so much of the listener feedback that I got that there's a ton of Alanons that are listening to this podcast out there. And I expected there to be some, but I mean, it's, it's, uh, uh, it, it, there are so many people from Alanon listening. And so from this particular episode right here. I mean, I hit the jackpot. I got both an AA story, a great AA story, and I got Mr. Spencer from the recovery show.
0: (laughs) Throwing up my hands. Okay. Um, I want to say, actually, if I I can, I'd I'd like to talk to that particular thing that happens. Um, When I was early in my Al-Anon recovery, I went to a lot of AA speaker talks. Uh, there's a meeting in in my community that's been going on for years. It meets every Saturday night every Saturday night. a different alcoholic tells his story his or her story you know what what it was like, what happened what it's like now and what I got from going to more than a hundred of those was the story is the same. The details are completely different, but the story is the same. I got an understanding of the grip that this disease of alcoholism has on the sufferers who are afflicted with it, including my wife, because I couldn't hear her story from her lips. I was too close to it, but I could hear her story from other people's lips and get understanding and compassion for what she was struggling with, for what she was going through. That's the first thing I got from all those. The second thing I got was hope. Because during that time, she was still drinking most of it. I would see these people who had gone way further down, in my opinion. And now they're standing up there, sober, telling their story. And like, if it happened to them, it can happen to her. So that may be... What some of the Al Anons listening to your podcast are are getting, are looking for, because, again, my experience, I got that from listening to other other alcoholic stories. Gives that glimmer
2: of hope, and understanding I, and hope, understanding and hope, right? And I want people to know how this uh, episode came about as well, and that, and in other words. Spencer and I had talked beforehand, and we had planned on him coming over to record an episode. Uh, And then we, when I say we, me and Amy and Spencer all went and had dinner beforehand. We were talking, I was sitting across from Amy, and she was sharing something about her experience with Alcoholics Anonymous. And all of a sudden, it just went in my head. I said, hey, have you ever shared your story before? (laughs) And she was like, yeah, I have. And I was like, will you want to talk about it tonight when we go record? And they were like, well, let's see how this goes. And we had kind of a conversation and uh, Amy started telling me some of her story. And I was like, no, 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 hold it. I I don't want to hear it. I want to hear it firsthand uh, when we're uh, sitting together in a moment. So I'm so glad this all, all worked out. All right. So I'm going to wrap it up. With a uh, page 164 from the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, just like we've been tonight. And we will surely meet some of you, such as me and Amy and Spencer, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Amy and Spencer, thank you so much for popping by tonight.
0: Thank you for having us. Thank you. to thank everybody who wrote and called in the last week or so. Paula says, I absolutely love your podcast. When I first came into the program, I listened to lots of YouTube speakers, which helped a lot, but the recovery show is much more real life to me. I can relate to many of the topics that you share. I used to think before Al-Anon that if my loved one would stop using drugs, that things would be a bit more manageable in our lives. But now after being in the program almost two years, I'm asking, how do you live with sobriety? LOL. Little shrug emoji there. I tend to honeymoon, as my first sponsor used to say, with my loved one when things are good and he is going to meetings and doing daily meditation and all those good things. I often get lost in that and forget that I'm supposed to be working on me and not him or his recovery. I'm only supposed to support him. A show about living with sobriety is something I could really use. Thank you. Smiley face heart. Paula. Great idea, Paula. I think I have a feeling that somebody else has also suggested the same topic. I thought I had a previous request. If I did, I didn't write it down. But now it's written down. Thanks, Paula. Vicki left us a voicemail.
2: Hi, Spencer. My name is Vicki. I want to thank you for your, for your show. I just listened to sayings, quotes, proverbs, and parables with Eric, and it really resonated with me. I have my ODAT, and I open it up inside, and I've written down, a saying that I just love from St. Teresa of Lisieux. She said, Turn your eyes back upon yourself, and you will not judge the doings of others. I have that in my ODAT, and I read it before I read my day. I really appreciate all that you do. You make a big difference in my life, and I've, I've recommended your recovery show to many, many people. I'm here in California. I don't know if I mentioned that. Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you, Vicky, for that saying. That really sounds like a great way to start each day. Michaela says, hello. Thank you so much for all of your service. A group of fellows and I were thinking of working the steps as a group rather than the traditional sponsor-sponsee structure. I've heard this being discussed on your show, but it is uncommon where I live. Do you have any insights on how group step work tends to be structured? Do you have any experience in this area or know someone I could connect with? Thank you. Warm regards, Michaela. Well, Michaela, I've done this, I've worked the steps as a group, I think, three times now. We've always used the same structure. Uh, I'm sure there are others, but the groups that I've been in have all used the book Paths to Recovery. Our structure is that we meet regularly, once a week or once every two weeks. We assign ourselves as a group a set of questions for the step we're studying to be answered. Uh, Generally, we write answers before the meeting, and then in the meeting, we talk about our answers, or we read our answers. The three groups that I've been in have had different feelings about crosstalk during our meeting. In one of them, there was very little or no crosstalk about our sharing. In the other two, I think there was a lot more. And it really just depended on what the group members were comfortable or uncomfortable with. And I remember in one of them, I think we were going in step five and it was a question in step five about, is there something you haven't been able to share with anybody else or something like that? And before I read my answer, I said, this is hard for me. I would prefer that nobody say anything in response because in that group, we we did sometimes talk back and forth after after we each read our response. So that's the way I've done it. My wife has been in some step study groups and And I think they use a similar structure. I'm really not sure because I haven't asked her in detail. And I'm sure there are other ways to do it. But like I said, that's the way I've done it. And that has worked pretty well for me. Thanks for asking. Louise left a comment on episode 84, which is the four M's, manipulation, managing, mothering, martyrdom. She says, I must share this with my younger sponsees who are still living with active alcoholism. Sure enough. I had a voicemail and an email about crosstalk. An anonymous listener writes, I'm one of the core members of a new Naranon family group less than one year, and recently we've had a lot more crosstalk. At my most recent meeting, four people spoke in direct response to my share, which made me very uncomfortable. I felt betrayed by my group, like it's no longer a safe place to share. After some of their unwarranted feedback began, I mentioned, wow, we are having a lot of crosstalk today. My group secretary said, with a hearty laugh, we all know each other and have been coming for a long time. We're all okay with it. Though I believe their feedback to my share was out of their concern, support, or love for me, my share didn't warrant immediate feedback. There was no imminent danger that I was asking for help navigating. I was horrified at my secretary's response, and now I don't know how to approach my home group with my concern. Is there a rule or something that forbids crosstalk in 12-step programs? Your thoughts or suggestions are welcome. And I also got a voicemail from Jess.
3: Hi, my name is Jess, and I'm calling from California. First off, thanks for the great show. It's really been awesome to discover and been augmenting my own recovery journey very nicely. So I really appreciate that. I did spend some very good time in Al-Anon for a couple of years while I was exiting a marriage with a heavy drinker, but I found my deepest work I needed to do in ACA. So I've been primarily an ACA attendee um, for the last couple of years. But I occasionally do pop back into my al meeting just when I need a check-in or another meeting or fresh perspective or something. The last time I went to my original al meeting, I experienced something that I wondered if you guys could address on the air, which is I received a lot of positive energy from people. Hey, you're back. It's so good to see you. I really missed your shares. I really missed you. you know A lot of that, which is like borderline, almost crosstalky because too much praise and it's hard for any see to have too much grace. But it wasn't sweet and nice. And then I had a woman come up to me at the end of the meeting and she's like, Oh, what have you been up to? Do? How's it been going? And I sort of told her a little bit about what my life was like. And she said something that was so damning. I don't think she meant it damning, but it was so damning to me that I basically made a decision never to go back to that Al Anon meeting again. And I've been struggling with that because I miss it. I miss there's aspects of the program I miss, there's aspects of that meeting that I miss. Those people and I was toying this morning was like, okay, do I confront this person and say, Hey, you know, you said this thing to me and it was really difficult to hear and it really turned me off. And, and I just, you know, want you to take responsibility for it, but I can't control her and what she does and wants to do. And, you know, so I'm grappling with that kind of thing. So I'd be happy to hear your feedback on what to do when you experience crosstalk in a meeting in such a way that feels inappropriate. How to return to a sense of safety in that meeting is what I'm kind of after. Okay, that's all. Thanks a lot, and I look forward to hearing the next show. Ta-ta.
0: Thank you both for raising that concern, and I wonder if that's a a topic, episode topic, perhaps. As far as I know, um, and according to tradition for each group is autonomous, uh, except in matters affecting the program as a whole. And so each group can make rules agreements about whether crosstalk is permitted in the in the meeting or not. And it sounds to our anonymous writer it sounds like maybe your meeting has not addressed this topic directly and it might be a good time to do that. Recently, well within the last year or so, a member of one of my Alana meetings became very uncomfortable with another member's crosstalk. So she first brought it to some friends that she felt safe talking about it with. Then we brought it to the meeting's group conscience. The group conscience spent actually, I think, several months talking about what was crosstalk. I think we all agreed that crosstalk can severely harm the feeling of safety in the group. I think both of you expressed that. And we came to an agreement to add some words to our opening about crosstalk and emphasizing the need for members to feel safe when they share. A short definition of crosstalk is included there, which includes responding to or commenting on another member's share. I don't know whether your meeting has a group conscience. Sounds like new non-family group. Maybe you don't. That might be something that that you want to start doing, but by bringing it to to maybe a friend or two, you can come into that with support so you don't feel alone, even though I wouldn't be surprised if many other members of the group agree with you. You know the group secretary is not the leader or the boss of the group. The second tradition says for our group purposes, there is but one authority, a loving God, as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. And I looked this up, it's the same tradition in both Naranan and Alanan. The group secretary was expressing their opinion. And I think it's important that everybody's opinion is heard. That's what group conscience is about. And that the group as a whole makes a decision whether they are comfortable with crosstalk or not. But yeah, it's a it's a tough issue. It really is. Jess asks When you experience crosstalk, how do you return to a sense of safety in that meeting? My friend who experienced crosstalk and and was thinking about maybe not coming back to that meeting because of it, I think was able to find safety in first talking with friends and then bringing it to the group and and having the group conscience come to a decision that crosstalk was not something that we wanted to support in the meeting. So some ideas there. Kathy writes, thank you again for having podcasts to help me in my recovery journey and make me feel like I'm experiencing a meaning from a different perspective. I'm catching up a bit here. So a couple things I wanted to share a while back, someone asked if anyone had the experience of having to take responsibility for an alcoholic due to a loss of cognitive function. While I have not had that experience per se, I had a brother who was schizophrenic. And when my mother died, I became the person responsible for him. It was early in my recovery and I struggled with how much to do for him. Also, he was living far away from me, and I decided for the sake of my children I would not bring him closer. For several years he lived on his own, and it was a downward spiral, in part because my mother always took care of everything, and he really didn't have the skills to live on his own. He was diabetic, so group homes that would take him were few and far between, with 10 year long waiting lists. It took me several years to accept the truth of his situation, have him declared incompetent, and have him declare bankruptcy. Meanwhile, because of his lack of self-care, he ended up in a nursing home so they could regulate his medications and food. I don't think he ever truly accepted his situation, and I tried whenever I could to let him make choices about what he could have and do. He had tardive dyskinesia and would choke on his food often. After conversations with his doctor and with him about the possibility of a feeding tube, we decided that eating was one of the few pleasures left to him and that we would not take that away. He never gave up on the possibility of getting a new car or getting out of the nursing home into a new apartment. The day he died, there was a message on my cell phone about a car in the paper. I only picked up messages from him when I felt I could listen calmly. I bookended every visit with a call of my sponsor or another member of my home group. I tried to treat him like a sponsee, letting him decide how he would live his life inside the confines of his situation, realizing I could not change him to be the person I would like him to be. I hope someone finds that helpful. As far as quotes go, here is one of my favorites. You cannot change the wind, but you can adjust your sails. If you are a sailor, you know that the wind will do what it likes, even changing direction unexpectedly. But you can still sail home through it if you adjust your sails and keep your course. Jonathan Swift wrote, Men must not turn into bees who kill themselves in stinging others. And last but not least, a positive attitude may not solve all your problems, but it will annoy enough people to make it worth the effort. Kathy A. Delaware. Thank you, Kathy. Thank you for your experience taking care of your brother. And I hope other people who are struggling with similar situations may find some, some help there. I love your quotes. I have been a sailor when I was young. We spent our summers on a lake and we had a couple of little sailboats, one of which we could, I could sail solo or with one other person. And living on a lake... Surrounded by hills, the wind was extremely flaky. And so I'm very familiar with this idea of adjusting your sails so you can get home because you can't change the wind. Michelle left us a voicemail with a little bit of experience, strength, and hope and some concerns.
3: My name is Michelle, PD, and I live in Minnesota. I'm currently going to an al parenting meeting, which is good. It gives me support around the parenting issues, but a lot, the vast majority of the people attend are later midlife and their kids are adults um addicted to alcohol or drugs or combos or homeless and i kind of see like the writing on the wall and how do i deal with the screens and electronics and the sugars and the split households and the co-parenting with craziness thank you so much for all of your service Um it's a wonderful podcast and um, i listen to it almost daily and re-listen to other ones But yeah, I also listened to Mary Pearl on XA Speakers. Thanks. Bye-bye.
0: Thank you for calling, Michelle. Sarah left us some feedback.
3: Uh, Hi, this is Sarah. I really like your show um, and just wanted to leave some respectful feedback for consideration. In multiple episodes I've listened to, you've referred to who I presume is an adult female as girl, and never heard you refer to an adult male is man it doesn't sound great so you know it it seems like it wouldn't be too hard to to just refer to women as women i'm sure it's not intentional and you might not even be aware of it but i i thought i would make that suggestion thank you bye
0: thank you for that feedback sarah i always always try to treat everyone with equal respect as I mentioned, I think last week, my gut response to feedback can be defensiveness. And I have to admit that I am feeling a little bit defensive right now. If it was me that used that language, I do apologize. And if it was one of my guests, well, I can apologize on their behalf. But I really can't take ownership of, of what other people say. That's what the program tells me as much as I might feel like I need to. I will do my best to be vigilant in the future to avoid language that minimizes others. Thanks for calling. It doesn't cost you anything to listen to The Recovery Show, but we do have expenses. You can help to support us and keep us on the web and in your ear in a couple of ways. We have a donation button on the website where you can support us directly, just like Diana, Karen, Rebecca, Molly, and Linda did. Thank you again, Diana, Karen, Rebecca, Molly, and Linda, for your support. We have put together a list of recovery-related books. Click or tap on the books link in the menu at the top of the page. And if you order one of these books from Amazon, through our website, we will receive a small commission. And the books you order directly from Al-Anon or Nar-Anon, all the money goes to those programs. Thank you for your support, in whatever form you give it. Whether it's sharing the podcast with your friends, simply direct them to the recovery.show or just listening to us. We are here for you.